Welcome to Growing in God's Word, a Bible class recap. It's a weekly summary of the discussions we have in our Sunday morning Bible class at Trinity Lutheran Church. I'm Pastor Thomas Fricke, and I'll be guiding you through some of the discussions we've had while exploring topics of relevance to Christians living in today's world. Today's topic, the feminist movement, a biblical view. The January 2022 issue of Lutheran Witness included an overview of the feminist movement and its impact on American culture. The article was written by Rebecca Curtis. Our discussion followed a summary of the content of that article. In the article, Curtis makes the point that many Christians think of feminism as a buffet. There are things to like and not to like, but she points out that at its root, Feminism doesn't really intend to be taken that way. It doesn't intend to be a grab bag. It's an all-encompassing philosophy, a unified system of thought. And the purpose of feminism is to shape the way people view the world and to influence their decisions about how to live. Paul urges us to see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy And so our goal today is to understand feminism as a human philosophy in the light of God's word. Those who study the history of feminism usually divide the movement into three waves of influence, and some would actually say that there is a fourth movement that is a fourth wave that is now underway. The first wave began with the women's suffrage movement, which was led by Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, in the late 1800s. Property owners had always voted on behalf of their households, but first-wave feminists reframed the family as a group of individuals rather than as a unit. In other words, they they, they viewed households um, as a composite of individuals. This was a little different way of thinking uh, from before when one person, the man, the landowner, would uh, have a voice and a vote on behalf of the rest of the household. Once married women were allowed to hold property, it became easier for husbands and wives to divorce, and first-wave feminism was closely allied with the temperance and anti-slavery movements. Its lasting effect was to increase women's involvement in public and political life. Second-wave feminism hit the scene in the early, in the 1960s. Influenced by Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex in 1949, uh, by Helen Gurley Brown's Sex and the Single Girl, a 1962 book, and especially Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique in 1963, this wave urged women to claim the same rights to wealth and promiscuity as men. Feminists in the 1960s fought to make divorce easier and to make abortion legal, And it was during this wave that the first oral contraceptives were approved. Feminism taught women to resent social norms that supported the family, while economic realities at that time forced more women to work away from the home. De Beauvoir wrote disparagingly of motherhood, motherhood, claiming that it left women riveted to her body like uh, the animal. And since it sought to downplay the differences between men and women, Feminism was quite sympathetic toward homosexuality. The third wave of feminism surged in the 1990s. The earlier writings of Kate Millett and Shulamith Firestone 
set the stage for this wave. Um, Millet's book, Sexual Politics, was written in 1969, and Firestone's book, The Dialectic of Sex, in 1970. The wave didn't really hit. Uh, that kind of thinking didn't really become as popular until the 90s. But drawing upon the communist philosophies of Friedrich Engels and Karl Marx, these authors had portrayed women as an oppressed class. Firestone noted that women, not men, conceive and give birth to children. And so women's oppression, in her writing, has its roots in biology. And therefore, she concluded biology is the, the problem that needs to be overcome. And so feminists sought abortion on demand and contraceptive services at little, little, little or no cost so that uh, these things could be funded by all taxpayers and employees and insurance holders rather than just those who are seeking the services. Third-wave feminists also promote today laws that favor hiring women over men for high-status positions, and the wave is generally considered to be sex-positive in the sense that it fully supports promiscuity, voluntary pornography, and sex work, which is prostitution. Today, feminism is divided over what to make of transgenderism. Many feminists recognize, recognize that men who claim to be women are a threat to their progress. And while feminism and transgenderism pursue a common goal, the right to sexual, total sexual fulfillment, feminism plays down the differences between men and women. Uh, by contrast, this is where the conflict comes in. Transgenderism holds that gender differences do matter and that bodies can and should be reconfigured to correspond to a person's gender preference. So if sexual identity is determined not by the body you're born with, but by the way you feel about your body, then nobody should be able to limit women's athletic competitions to people who were born as women. And this discussion, as you probably can tell, is a long way from being resolved. In, in recent years, it's, it's, uh, uh, feminism has begun to kind of sift out a little bit more, and we can see that it's brought about some big changes. The biggest change may simply be in the way that we speak and we think about women's experiences in our culture today. Feminism claims that women used to be miserable domestic slaves until feminism saved them. At least that's the way it's portrayed. And you can remember this, uh, if you remember the Virginia Slims as you've come a long way, baby, right? You've got your own cigarette now, baby. You've come a long, long way is the way the song used to go on those ads. Uh, Christians know that faithful men have always cared for and cared about their daughters, their wives, their sisters, their mothers, their neighbors. And still we imagine that the world before feminism, it had to have been insulting and tyrannical. Uh, we have this kind of cultural memory in that kind of way that really distorts the reality. We have a hard time seeing today how the traditions of a patriarchal society could actually be wise and loving. The first Women's Rights Convention took place in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, when Elizabeth Cady Stanton argued that man has compelled woman to submit to laws in the formation of which she had no voice. She did not add that many women appreciated the social expectations of the day. They happily complied with them because they they'd simply made sense. Uh, today, 
Uh, Christians know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. That's something we we understand. God the Father, uh, the the word pater in Latin, is the ultimate patriarch. Uh, The Bible is patriarchal. Uh, God bestows the honor of this title, uh, pater, on every father. And, of course, earthly fathers sin. But this is no reason to defy the heavenly father who has given these fathers to us and commands that we honor them in the fourth commandment. So that's Rebecca Curtis's uh, summary of the feminist movement. And she does say that at its root, feminism is suspicious of men, it's hostile toward them, it rejects the fatherhood of God. Few, if any, of the leading feminists in any age have been orthodox Christians, but in feminist thought, Fathers aren't just the only ones that are holding women back. The real culprit is what is sometimes called the reproductive burden, the fact that women carry babies, that they give birth to them. Feminism seeks to remove this disparity by eliminating the outcome, that is, eliminating babies. And in this way, feminism does not just despise fathers, it despises children. Feminism will not accept that chastity is a way to prevent pregnancy, After all, if sexual freedom is the goal, then promiscuity is the answer. And in that case, abortion levels the playing field between men and women. Now, we had some discussion on this, and uh, in that discussion, the first question we asked is uh, with regard to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5. Here's where Paul speaks directly to husbands and wives and says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands. Submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. He goes on to say, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And he continues, However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So he talked about how we could summarize what Paul is saying here. And the forgotten part in this, I mean, the word that jumps out is the word submit. It's a very hard word to hear in today's culture. And um, uh, it it sounds almost jarring. Uh, But this is a submission of oneself. It's not an enforced submission. So the question was, how would you summarize what Paul is saying here? Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives with a self-giving kind of love. And wives willingly Submit yourselves to that kind of loving leadership on the part of the husband. We ask this question, too. Do you agree or disagree that every Christian marriage will follow the same pattern? Uh, the question is, of course, uh, purposely ambiguous because uh, you can answer that in, in one way or the other. Um, uh, yes, uh, every Christian marriage uh, will follow the Lord's command. To, uh, for husbands to love their wives with a self-giving kind of love and for wives to submit their, themselves to their husband's loving leadership. 
On the other hand, every single marriage is going to be different um, in the way that these general commands are, are carried out and the way they go in each family. I gave the example of um, in some homes, uh, the man is the one who handle, handles all the finances. In other homes, uh, that's that's what the wife does uh, because she's really good at it. And uh, that's the way it is in our own marriage uh, as well, that uh, my wife is the one that handles the financial uh, decisions in, in so many ways that uh, that sort of go beyond my ability to uh, to to handle it in a in a good kind of way. We also asked this question: um, What do you think makes the word submission so hard for us and for our twenty first century ears to hear? Probably because it smacks of a, a forced kind of submission, not a voluntary submission. It almost sounds as if it's something that does create a kind of oppression. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, is writing to a congregation that was deeply divided and troubled and uh, had a lot of problems going on and at, at that particular point in time. And Paul says, God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. Women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? Um, and he goes on to say that if anyone thinks that they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. So Paul is saying women should remain silent in the churches. There, there needs to be a little bit more explanation or understanding of this. Maybe that comes, uh, some of that clarification can come from 1 Timothy, where Paul uh, is writing to Timothy, who is uh, at the time of writing, pastoring the church in Ephesus. And what Paul writes to Timothy is about uh, some instructions that have to do with public worship. He says, I want the men everywhere to pray lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. There is that word submit again. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man, she must be quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. I asked the group if, if they could identify the differences between men and women that Paul expresses here in these verses, if they would be able to, to make a list. And some of the things that we talked about were that Paul says that women are to remain, uh, to be silent, um, to, to learn in quietness and full submission. Uh, men are bidden by the Apostle Paul to pray, to uh, be the leaders in worship. 
Paul also says that uh, he does not uh, permit the woman to have authority over a man. And then he goes on to explain a little bit about uh, what happened in the beginning. Um, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. These are his reasons. And then he says, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So this leads naturally to the next question. Um, Why should it matter to Paul or to anyone else that Adam was formed first or that Eve was the one who first ate of the fruit? Didn't they both sin? And weren't each of them created uniquely by God? Well, the answer to that is that um, it, 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 it mattered because Adam was the one who was given the command. We read from the book of Genesis where we're told that God took the man, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord and the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And then he goes on, uh, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. He goes on to create that that first woman after that. So the implication here is that Adam has created, God gives him the command not to eat the fruit from the tree, that single command. Then Eve is created. Adam is led to appreciate this great blessing of a woman. And then we go on from there to read the very first part of Genesis chapter 3 where the devil comes to Eve with the temptation. Uh, Nowhere has God told us that he is the one who spoke to Eve. The implication is that Adam is the one who needed to share this information with Eve so that when the devil comes to her and says, did God really say, I can't believe God said that you must not eat from any of the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Uh, She says, no, 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 we can eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but not Uh, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then she adds, and you must not touch it or you will die. Perhaps she added that on her own. Perhaps she and Adam had discussed it and said, let's just not touch it, okay? Uh, But now the significant part is in the fall into sin. In Genesis chapter 3, we find that she takes some after the devil persuades her this might be a good thing for her to do this and being like God, knowing good and evil. She takes some of the fruit and she gives it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And so this whole time, Adam has been there watching what is going on and not exercising any kind of leadership, almost as if Eve is his human guinea pig so that he can find out whether or not something happens to her once she eats of this fruit. Uh, There is a failure of leadership on the part of Adam. And uh, there is a failure to obey the word of God on the part, uh, the command of God on the part of both Adam and Eve. There is a reason why Adam is more frequently mentioned as the one who plunged the entire race into sin. The Apostle Paul himself makes that point very, very clear in Romans chapter 5. Um, So, 
What we noted in, in coming up with all of this is in studying feminism, the Bible is really a, a patriarchal book. It sets up a kind of a, a, a male-oriented uh, uh, leadership in both the family and in the church. This has its implications for society as well. But what's really important for us to note here is that uh, feminism, uh, as it is in the, in our world today, we just need to recognize in ways that perhaps we don't always know or realize or, or see in our everyday lives, it does uh, have a philosophy behind it. And the philosophy is one that seeks to, oh, sort of position women, all women, as a kind of an oppressed class, and it sets itself up over against a biblical concept, which is that of male leadership in the home and in society as well. And if we don't recognize the Freudian and the Marxist kind of uh, origins of the feminist movement, we might be a little bit more tempted or a little bit more susceptible to kind of swallowing parts of the philosophy that are not that are not good. I, I think it's important for us to recognize that there are some good accomplishments that feminism has brought about. Um, I think it's it's uh, it's good for us to recognize that men have at times been oppressive toward women, but that is by no means the biblical standard nor is it uh, the Christian norm, and it, it should not be. It needs to be opposed when men are oppressive toward women, abusive toward women, or dismissive of, of women and their thoughts, their contributions, and uh, their opinions. On the other hand, uh, it, it's also important for us to, to recognize and resist uh, any kind of philosophical movement in our culture and our, our society that has to do with, with men and women or with gender that uh, seeks to set itself up in opposition to biblical theology and the reality uh, that we are the people that God has made us to be. Jesus himself said, "Did you not uh, have you not read that at the beginning, God made them male and female. He made us male and female, men and women, and uh, that's the way God wants us to be. There's a little bit more that we could say about all of this, uh, and yet I think it's probably good for us just to uh, leave it at that. If you have any further questions, you can sure let us know, and then we'll see if we can work that into a Bible class at some point. So that's our Growing in God's Word Bible class recap for this week. Thank you once again for listening. If you have ideas for future topics, as I said, let us know. We'll see you next week as we begin to dig into the book of Jonah. Until then, keep on growing in God's word.